righty. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only who he is, but who he is to us. What he, what he means to us. That our lives are forever changed because we met Jesus. Father, we thank you for the written word. And we ask that as we preach the written word this morning, that it reveals the living word within your people. Be glorified, be magnified, be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we're going to be talking about a subject that every single person deals with. And that's guilty conscience, condemnation, guilt, the weight of guilt. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, because many of us have been taught that this is the source of our guilty conscience, is God. Is God the the source of our guilty conscience. And we know that Jesus desires for us to have life and life to the full, life, the abundant life, a fruitful life, right? But if our hearts, our minds, get contaminated with unhealthy thinking, it contaminates our harvest, our life. And what's the awesome thing about what Jesus Christ has done is he's taken those roots that have went deep down into humanity, in each one of us, into our spirits, that condemnation, that fear, that guilty conscience that wants to hide from God. In Christ Jesus, he has plucked it out of our spirits. And as he plucked that out of our spirits, it left ruts. In our souls. And the thing about a rut, have you ever went down a trail that had ruts in it? And you don't want to fall into the rut because you might get stuck. You, you, you try to stay off the ruts, you try to stay to the side, and the ruts are filled with water and mud. And it's, but every once in a while, it's, you slide back down into the ruts, and then it causes, causes trouble. And we got to create some new ruts in our thinking, in our minds, so that we fall down into positive ruts, a positive path, rather than the negative ruts that we have built through life and through man-made religion. So these ruts that left a mark on the way that we think, the way we interpret life, the way we interpret God, there's many of them. One of them is, is, is the roots that go down and create stress in our life. And scientific research has linked excessive stress to various conditions including cardiovascular disease, hypertension, elevated cholesterol levels, stroke, skin eruptions, migraine, sexual impotency, and infertility. So even science, even man's attempt to understand the human nature has linked high levels of stress to being unhealthy in your life. And then fear. Fear is a deeper root. It goes deeper 
than, than stress. And fear can manifest itself in the form of panic attacks or perpetual state of anxiety. It can also result in prolonged insomnia, constant unrest, and a uh, disturbed state of mind. And, and if you've met many Christians, you know that they must have fear in their life because they have a disturbed state of mind. But for most people, they would say that this is their normal life. They fear tomorrow. They fear what tomorrow is going to bring, what's going to happen in, in our country, in the world, all of these things. And they're stressed out. I'm just stressed. They have, and they found in many cases that fear precedes stress. That stress is rooted in fear. And as critical as these two roots are, that we have to remove that way of thinking out of our life, and how do you, the, the simple answer to how you remove that out is belief. Believe God, believe Jesus, trust. Don't lean on to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. You know, I, this is off the subject a little bit, but I was doing a little study for myself, and I typed in the word on my um, phone, believing, believing. And it came up that it was not, you know, the red line came underneath it, that, that it was not a word, or it was spelt wrong or something like that. So then I thought that was strange. So then I clicked on it, and it had, it, uh, believe came up as a replacement. So then that got me thinking, believing, believing. And uh, I thought, really, that's a church word. Believing is a church word. I'm believing that God's going to do something great in my life. And when I started looking at the definition, the deeper I went, I finally found something that would interpret believing as the state of believing something. Like, I'm believing the best is going to happen which really means I sure hope it's going to happen, right? If you're believing the best is going to happen, that's, I'm hoping the best is going to happen. So what I came to the conclusion is, is that the word believing is not a word. And it's definitely not a word that a Christian should use. Because believing puts it out there. I'm believing that it's going to happen one day, someday, I don't know, maybe when we all get to heaven then I will receive what I'm believing. The, Bible that, the word that the Bible uses is believe. You either believe or you don't believe. There is no future tense in believe. Right? If you believe something, that means it's what? Fact. It's true. So we can't be believing for something to happen. We're just hoping that it will happen. You either believe it's happened or you don't believe it's happened. I, that was just a little thing that God worked in my life this uh, week. And I don't know why we're talking about it. But to get back to where we were, we have to get these roots out of our thinking that contaminate our thinking by right believing. By believing, I'm, see I'm using that word, I got to change by by just believing. 
I just have to believe what Jesus Christ has done. Trusting, trust what Jesus Christ has done. I believe what Jesus has done, or I believe what the world is going to do to me. And when you believe, perfect love casts out fear. When you believe the love of God in your life, then fear has no place to, to find a place to root down in your life. But there is even a greater, there's even, even a greater root that goes deeper than both fear and stress. And it's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. This is the voice translation. It says, The woman approached the tree, eyed its fruit, coveted its mouth-watering, wisdom-granting beauty. She plucked a fruit from the tree and ate. She then offered the fruit to her husband, who was close by, and he ate as well. Suddenly, their eyes were opened to the reality previously unknown. For the first time, they sensed their vulnerability and rushed to hide their naked bodies, stitching fig leaves into crude loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the internal God walking in the cool, misting shadows of the garden. The man and his wife took cover among the trees and hid from the eternal God. As soon as man, humanity, man and women, woman, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, guilt, condemnation, and fear entered into their life. Guilt, condemnation, and fear entered their life. And then later they had kids, and so stress entered in too. No, but, but uh, this deepest root of condemnation entered into their life. And what you've got to understand is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that the knowledge of good is just as bad as the knowledge of evil. Because if you know what is good and you're not able to do what is good, it brings condemnation and guilt. It brings condemnation and guilt. And when it talks about, when it talks about here, suddenly their eyes were opened to a reality previously unknown to them, this is where humanity received a conscience. A conscience. God, through them wanting to be their own God, to know the difference between good and evil for themselves instead of in relationship with God, they received a conscience so they would know what is good and what is evil. In humanity, in each human, there is a knowing, a knowing of what is good and what is evil. Now, you can sear your conscience. The Bible talks about searing your conscience to where you are no longer guilty, feel guilty to evil things that you do. But, it, it, but before you get to that point, you had a conscience that said, this is wrong. I should not be doing this. And you can sear yourself to, to the knowledge of, of good, good in the earth. And then you can actually sear yourself where you, the Holy Spirit doesn't affect you anymore. It's, the Bible calls it reprobate. You know, you look at, uh, I'm really talking all over the place today, but you look at uh, Pharaoh. How could he see the miraculous things that he's seen and not just fall on his face and worship God? 
It's because in his heart, he seared his heart to him being a God to the point that he was reprobate. He, he, he made these choices, choice after choice. And what's interesting is when you read that account, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then after the two times that Pharaoh hardened his heart, then it says God hardened his heart. How did God harden his heart? By continuing doing the same thing that he was doing to Pharaoh before when Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. So anyways, that's an, that's an answer for some people's questions there. Why, why does the Bible say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, it literally says that Pharaoh hardened his heart before God did it. So, this guilty conscience, this conscience that is guilt-ridden, it, it gives this idea that we deserve punishment. And we either expect God to punish us or we ourselves will punish, self-punish ourselves. There's a lot of people to this day still whip themselves as penance. They'll crawl on broken glass praying. In some third world countries, there's people that literally go through a cruci- they crucify themselves during the Easter season, trying to earn God's forgiveness. That's what guilt can do to you. But as devastating as all of that is, the number one thing, the worst thing that guilt can do to you is what it did to Adam and Eve and cause a man to run and hide from God. To run and hide from God. So does God make us feel guilty? Is the source of our guilty conscience God? Did Jesus sneak out of heaven against his father's wishes and come and die for us? Because God wants us to feel guilty. No, of course not. Is God the bad cop and Jesus is the good cop? No, that's stupid. But this is the religious picture of our Father, our Heavenly Father, and it's ridiculous. The Father and the Son do not have different agendas. They are united in heart, both full of grace and truth. If you, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And who's his Father? His Father was God. But what about the Holy Spirit? See, we think that the Holy Spirit is the divine sheriff. That he just shows up to point out all of our missteps, our ha- uh, things we've done wrong. That that's the job of the Holy Spirit to be the, the heavenly nagger. To nag you. That you're not doing it good enough. You're, you're falling short. You're, that you've sinned and that, that you have lost fellowship with God. And we're going to find out that that's not true, true either. And you're sitting there thinking, Chad, I know that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts us, that he convicts us of our sin. Well, in John chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, speaking of the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning Sin. So the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin. Well, if you want a little bit more guilt-ridden version, we'll look at the 1984 version of the NIV. It puts it this way. But I tell you the truth, 
It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. The problem, this is probably the number one teach, uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, the reason why he was given to us is to, to make us feel bad. When you sin, the Holy Spirit will convict you of your guilt in regard to sin, but there's a problem. How can the Holy Spirit, how can the Holy Spirit convict you of something that God says he chooses not to remember? If the number one reason the Holy Spirit was sent was to get, convict us of our sin, why is he trying to remind you something Sometimes taking it like a baseball bat and just beating your brains out over and over again on something, some things that have happened 20 years ago that you're just driving in the car or you're in the shower in those quiet times of life and those thoughts start coming in, you're no good. Remember when you did that and just, just bang, 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 bang. So the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us things that God himself doesn't want to remember. And chooses not to remember. And says that he will not remember. And as a matter of fact, he'll take them up, ball them up, throw them into the sea of forgetfulness. Something's wrong with our understanding of these scriptures. In Hebrews 10, 15, verse 17, it says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. So look what the Holy Spirit's testifying to. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their, upon their heart and, their, and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. The Holy Spirit writes the, the law of God on our hearts. And he's testifying to us that God will remember our sins no more. More. So how can the Holy Spirit be convicting of us of our sins and at the same time testifying that our sins are remembered no more? Oh, the Bible's so confusing. See, under the law-keeping covenant, you had to keep track of all your sins and you had to atone. You had to have a sacrifice for your sins. But under the covenant of God's grace... Grace is categorized as the divine forgiveness of God once, once and for all. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 34, it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. When did God forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more? In Christ Jesus. Why does God choose to forget, forget our sins? Has he gone soft on sin? Has God just said, oh... It's been 4,000 years. I'm sick of beating them up about their sin. I'm just, whatever. Do whatever you want. No. No. God believes that Jesus Christ finished it. Jesus Christ accomplished it. God believes it. He chooses not to remember it, even if the church doesn't. Even if we choose to, to be a source of condemnation in the earth, God says, I choose not to remember your sins anymore. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. 
No condemnation in Christ Jesus. But if you come to the church, you can find lots of it. So if there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus and the church is filled with condemnation, maybe the church isn't in Christ Jesus. Hmm. God believes it, even if we don't. And on the cross, God gave sin such a smackdown that it never got back up again. We might try to help it back up. We might put that old grave clothes on and walk, try to walk around in it. But in God's eyes, it's defeated forever. It's defeated now, Satan's still alive. He's still in the earth. And our job is to walk around in victory. Our, God, our job is to enforce the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. The authority of the believer, what Pastor Tom preached on for the last three weeks. That you have authority in this earth because you are kingdom kids. You are divine. In choosing not to remember sin, God is saying, I have met the enemy, I have overcome the enemy, and I will not honor the memory of my enemy. Your old master sin has been thoroughly defeated. He's history. Well, then why do I still sin, you're thinking? That's a good question. You don't have to. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. World. It goes back to a simple thing. Believe. Believe who you are in Christ Jesus. Believe that Jesus accomplished it. Believe that once and for all sin has been defeated. So why does the Bible say that God convicts us of our guilt in regard to sin? It doesn't. If your Bible says it, then you have an old NIV version near... Nearly inspired version of the Bible. See, the word guilt was added by, the, by Bible translators in the New York Bible Society in the 1970s. So that word guilt doesn't, isn't even in the original Greek. The Bible does never anywhere says in the New Covenant that God convicts us of guilt. Regard, in regard to sin. The fact is, Jesus never said it. The Holy Spirit doesn't do it. He doesn't need to. He are, we already know we're guilty. Your conscience already convicts us of guilt. The law, the law was given to us to convict us of guilt. It wasn't given us to be righteous. It wasn't given us to be holy. It wasn't given us to try to live up to that standard. We can try, but it, all it does is it's a mirror that reflects our shame and guiltiness and our inability to be perfect. Our, conscious, our consciousness hammers us with guilt every time we do something wrong. Guilt is a signal that our lives have been disrupted by sin. It's a sign that a hurt needs to be healed. And when you have a hurt that needs to be healed, you take it to the healer. You take it to Jesus. The problem is, is we try to hurt, the hurt, fix the hurt with dead religion. We take it, we take our sins to, <clears throat> and hurts to the doctor law. 
And he gives, you, uh, gives us bad medicine. The law says you are not good enough. You are not doing enough. You need to work harder. We swallow this medicine, but the tumor of guilt gets bigger. Because law was not designed to fix you. It was to point out the disease. For thousands of years, man-made religion has preached against sin. And what has it gotten us? Think about that. You would think that if it was working, the church would look a lot better than it does. For thousands of years, we preach sin. I think it's time we try something different. I think we should try preaching the gospel. The fault is you, religion says. It, it cries it out that it's your fault. You're not keeping the rules, so we try harder. And when we try harder, what do we do? We fail bigger. So we t- go for a second opinion. We visit Dr. Mixture. You remember lukewarmness? We visit Mr. Lukewarmness, Dr. Mixture, and he says, You're forgiven as long as you don't sin. God is so kind, he will cleanse you from every sin that you confess. Now we are not only guilty, we are fearful. What if I miss one sin? What will God do then? With muddled messages like this, it's any wonder that religious people are some of the most unstable people on the planet. And you've met them. We don't have any unstable people here. You need to understand that God is not the one making you feel guilty. God removes guilt. The cross removes guilt. It doesn't give it. To be guilty means to be held responsible for your sin. And God doesn't hold you responsible. Look to the cross where Jesus took responsibility for your sin. We're going to look at this next week when we go through baptism. He bore our sin so that we might bear his righteousness. Under the law, the best of us is charged guilty on the account of sin. But under grace, the worst of us is counted righteousness because of Jesus. This is huge. This is huge. I know I'm righteous and justified, yet I still feel guilty. See, this is that... What. Tom was, I wasn't even here, and I, went, I know what Tom was preaching. This is what Tom was talking about last week, or, about, or in the Ephesians, about knowing and knowing. Well, I know, Chad. I know the Bible says I'm righteous. I know the Bible says I'm forgiven. No, you don't. Because you feel guilty. Right? If you're righteous, you can't be guilty. You can't feel guilty if you believe you're righteous. And you know what? If you believe you're righteous, guess what? You'll sin not. It's faith. Now you know why these scriptures, you know, we've quoted them for years. The just shall live by faith. The justified shall live by faith. Are you justified? Yeah, I'm justified, Chad. Then believe it. You are justified. You are not guilty. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are holy. As he is, so are you in this world. Now live like it. 
That's good news. The feeling of guilt is a symptom of unbelief. When you feel guilty, you should think, what, should I, what do I need to do to be forgiven? You should be thinking, I'm not believing who I am in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> do you believe that the blood is God's cure for sin? Then believe that it's the cure for guilt. Some of you guys are haunted. And the reason why I know this is because I've experienced it. You're haunted with stuff that happened before you were even born again. What's up with that? Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings that trusting, believing in what Jesus Christ brings, having our hearts sprinkled to, uh, sprinkled to cleanse us from guilt, a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you believe that? That your hearts have been cleansed from a guilty conscience and that our bodies have been washed with pure water. So this is saying something here that you've got to get revelation to. That not only has our minds been, God is sprinkling our minds. He sees our minds renewed in Christ Jesus. But even this body has been purified. Godly guilt. We need some godly guilt in the church again. Oh, Pastor, you really stepped on my toes this Sunday. I, I felt miserable when I left church. Oh, I must have really screwed up then. There's no such thing as godly guilt. Some think that God makes us feel guilty for a season in order to bring about a righteous purpose. Oh, so God's a manipulator. The Holy Spirit uses godly guilt to lead us to repentance. Don't you know that? You know, I don't read that in the Bible, but I have read that the goodness of God leads men to repentance. This religion double talk, the phrase godly guilt makes as much sense as demonic grace. Doesn't make any sense. The, the Holy Spirit and guilt go together like the devil and love goes together. His spirit of grace is not the spirit of guilt. He's the spirit of grace. Guilt is the language of man-made religion. But it's not the language they speak in heaven. Do you think you're going to have guilt when you get to heaven? Then you shouldn't have any guilt down here. Because you're not going to automatically just, I'm a totally different person when I get to heaven. See, people seen Jesus. The Pharisees seen Jesus. They were about to stone, they were about to stone Stephen. 
And it says that he looked up and he shone like an angel. And he says, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of God. The glory of God was being manifested in their presence. They seen his face shining. And what did they do? Did they fall to their knees and say, oh, glory to God. Praise Jesus. He is the Son of God. No. They grit their teeth. They gnash their teeth. And you know what they say that's going to happen in hell? They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because I believe that hell is the fiery love of God for people that hate him. That's what I believe. Because in Revelations it says that they're right in the presence of God. The, the, the lake of fire is before the throne of God. And the gates of heaven are always open. I don't know, that's some, read that stuff. You are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, so speak like it. When sin points out an accusing figure, f- finger at you, you need to shout back, look at the cross. When temptation comes knocking on the door, send Jesus to answer it. Because you don't live here no more. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. Have you said this before? I know I've sinned because my conscience has been pricked and I feel bad for what I did. Well, that's good. Is this evidence of the Holy, Spirit, of the Holy Spirit's conviction? No, it's not. It's evidence that you have a conscience. It's evidence of the fall, actually. The Holy Spirit will never condemn you or pile guilt on your head because of what you did. It would be an, ad- an admission to defeat, that Jesus Christ did not accomplish it. It would be equal to saying that Christ's work on the cross was insufficient remedy for humanity's sin. But the Holy Spirit does seek to convict, or a better word, convince us that Jesus is the cure for sin. Going back to John chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the help will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe upon me. I used to teach... That the only sin that the Holy Spirit convicts us of is our unbelief. But it's really not that he convicts us of the sin of unbelief. He convicts us of the cure for unbelief. The cure for sin. He convicts us of Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of unbelief, but rather he wills to convince the world of Jesus His purpose is to get you to believe Jesus has taken away your sin. Do you believe it this morning? Has Jesus taken away your sin? Concerning sin, he says, see Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in Christ's finished work. 
Don't believe in your own righteousness. Believe in his righteousness. Believe in his ability. Believe in his perfection in what he says. But Chad, you don't understand. I've really screwed up. I've done terrible things. I have some serious sin. Well, that might be true. But look what God says. He says, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And look at how the Amplified Version puts it. This is good. But where sin increased and abound, grace, God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabound. So does that mean we just go out and sin all we want? You're not, you're not stupid. Sin is evil. It's not your nature. It will destroy you. It will lead to death. But it's saying no matter what happens in this earth, no matter how far you've fallen away from God, no matter what you've done, God's grace superabounds it. It superabounds it. Amen. It's really that simple. Either Jesus' one-time sacrifice was the cure for the world's sin, or it wasn't. If it was, there's nothing you can do to improve it. And if it wasn't, there's nothing you can do to add to it. So in other words, there's nothing you can do. So we can all just take a... And relax. Either God is big enough and has accomplished it all, or we're all doomed anyways. <laughs> I choose to believe that God accomplished it. So why do we get so confused about this? I think in part is the reason um, is the word convict. In English, to convict someone is to declare them guilty of an offense. You are convicted, and then you become a convict, right? But this is not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't fill prisons. He empties prisons. So what, what does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit convicts us? The original word means to expose or to bring into the light. The Holy Spirit convicts us by turning the lights on. He does this not to shame you, but to show you the way to life. The Holy Spirit's conviction has nothing to do with your sin and everything to do with God's grace. It's not about the bad things you have done, but the good things He wants to do to you right now. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? The facts denounced her. The law condemns her. Angry religious men with stones were lining up to dispense a little Old Testament punishment on her head. For this sinner, death was just moments away. But Jesus intervenes. He stoops down and writes in the stand. And so many people wonder, what did he write? And they talk about what he wrote. But I think the whole point of it was not what he wrote drawing the attention off from the woman and onto the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. 
He diverted the attention unto himself. And when condemnation and guilt come in your life, we need to advert our attention to Jesus. And amazingly, when they start looking at Jesus, all the accusers, from the oldest to the youngest, drop their stones and walk away. In John chapter 8, verse 10, he says, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. This is what true conviction looks like. It's Jesus drawing your attention to the, his radiant light of love and acceptance. It's the hand of grace lifting your head and shielding you from the heavy stones of condemnation. It's the Son of God speaking in your defense and silencing the accuser. Religion says... You better stop sinning or God will condemn you. But grace says, I don't condemn you. I am for you. I will help you leave your life of sin. This good news is hard to believe. We probably wouldn't be able to receive it if it wasn't for the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of it. Now you know why the Holy Spirit has to convict us of our right standing in Christ Jesus, that he has to convict us constantly that Jesus is the cure for sin because we would not be able to do it if it wasn't by his grace and his empowerment. When you sin, your conscience may condemn you, the law may condemn you, religion may condemn you, but while all of this condemning is going on, the Holy Spirit will be there to remind you of your righteousness in Christ Jesus. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, Chad, I never hear the Holy Spirit convicting me of my righteousness in Christ Jesus, well, maybe you need to tune out to what you've been listening to. You've been so... Entrenched with religion, the religion of men, you're so entrenched to the voice of the devil, bringing accusations and condemnation to you. I mean, right now, you just received a key this morning. When condemnation comes, when guilt comes, when you're getting beat over the head, you should celebrate. Because you have just distinguished the voice of the enemy. And you can block that out. And listen for the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. If you believe, are you going to believe the the accuser of the brethren? Or are you going to believe Jesus? Are you going to believe the Holy Spirit? Are you going to believe that that, that the, the power, this power and the grace of God to sin no more? The Holy Spirit brings the good news that God justifies sinners. Does God care when we sin? Of course he does. What parent doesn't? His heart is broken. But he doesn't, 
but he does not put a black mark next to your name. Why? Because God is love. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Love keeps no record of wrong. Our sins grieve the Holy Spirit. They make him sad, but he doesn't withdraw, condemn, or guilt trip us in response. You do. When man sinned, the very first time, did God pull away from man? Did he distance himself from man? Did he say, oh no, they sinned, it's my kryptonite, I am weak in the presence of sin? No, the Bible says that God came looking for man. It says that the Bible, they heard God walking in the garden like normal. Who withdrew? Man did. Man hid from God. God has never, ever withdrew from humanity. And you see this played out through the entire Old Testament. He invited the whole, all the children of Israel up on Mount Sinai. And they didn't want to go. Because they said, Moses, you talk to God, because if we do, we'll die. They've seen judgment. They've seen destruction. And the Bible says that Moses walked up into the glory of God. And because of our brokenness through the fall, we had no way of relating with God. So God did the unthinkable. He became one of us. One of us. And took care of sin and gave a new spirit within us. Look what the Holy Spirit writes in the Psalms. In Psalms 103, verse 10, he says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. We have heard that God is good all the time, but it's even better than that. God is good all the time. But the good news is, is God is good all the time to you. He's good all the time to you. Do you believe that? He's good to you. He wants to do good to you. Even when you sin, God is still good. He does not treat you as your sin deserves, but continues to pour out his love upon you. Your sins have more chances of dimming the sun than they do on changing God's unconditional, amazing, great love for you. He sent Jesus. While we were still in our sins and trespasses, he sent Jesus. Now that you're a child of God, why would his attitude change? I know this may be hard for you to process and it will take a while to renew your mind to get out of those ruts that we fall back into that way of thinking. Well, the good news is we have the Holy Spirit to help us. <clears throat> we have been raised to beware sin, to resist sin, to run from sin, to overcome sin with so much emphasis on sin, guilt, and shame. It's any wonder so many of us, it's, is it any wonder that so many of us are so Sin conscious instead of Christ conscious. 
We need to be set free from this unhealthy obsession with sin. Am I minimizing the dangers of sin? Absolutely not. Your mistakes and bad decisions can hurt you, and they definitely hurt others. I'm saying God does not relate to us based on our behavior, whether he deals with us through the finished work of Jesus. Picture your life as a boat sailing across a trackless ocean. You are free to go any direction you like. The problem is there are risks involved. You, can, you can't predict the weather. You can't see over the horizon, and you don't know where the hidden reefs are. You need a guide, and this may cause you to think, thank God for the Bible, but the Bible is not your guidebook. It contains much help that is helpful, and we can test our leading by it, and the Holy Spirit never contradicts it, but it was not the helper sent to help you navigate life. For this, you need a navigator. Someone once said, we are not following Emmanuel. We are following Emmanuel, God with us. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. John chapter 16, verse 13. The Holy Spirit is the guide that leads us into all truth. Since Jesus is the truth, the Holy Spirit will, ne- will always steer us towards Jesus. That's how you can tell if you're being led by the Holy Spirit. Is he magnifying Jesus? Is he leading you to Jesus? Is he, is he convicting you to trust in Jesus? If, that, if the Holy Spirit's doing that, then you know that it's the Holy Spirit. He leads us to Jesus, and where is Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus is, is in us. And we are in Jesus. He, it gives us a choice. We can continue the way of the flesh that leads to death, or we can choose the way of Jesus and be empowered to life and godliness. Here's a simple test to see if you're getting this. What comes to mind when you hear the word correction? correction? What happens when God corrects you? Do you think of mistakes that need to be punished? Do you think of the rod of correction and naughty children in need of a whipping? If you do, your, th- your thinking is influenced by the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's correction was thought to involve the application of the rod to the seat of learning. It meant punishment. It meant sickness sent in response to sin. At least that's how David understood it. And David wrote in Psalms 39, verse 10 and 11, Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct me, man... For iniquity you make his beauty melt away like the moth. Surely every man is a vapor. Under the law-keeping covenant, the chastisement of the Lord was sometimes fatal. If you sin, you were toast. Why? Because of the law. The law was written on stone because it's unbendable. The law is the law. Under grace, your sins are toast, not you. This means we need a new definition of correction. 
When we hear the word correction, we need to think of a sailboat heading into dangerous directions. A course correction is needed. The sailboat isn't necessarily sinning or wrong. The sailboat's sin is not the point. The destination is the point. Where you're heading is the point. You can, you can curse the map. You can apply the old baseball bat of correction to the compass. But a far better thing to do is just to get back on course. The new covenant, in the new covenant, the word for correction means straightening up again. That's what correction means in the, in, in the Greek, to straighten up again. It implies all is not lost. You may have missed Jesus. You may have veered off course, but your life is not over. You may be heading towards the rocks, or maybe you've sunk in the entire ship. But the Holy Spirit can bring correction and straighten you back up again. If you need an example of the Holy Spirit correcting from the Bible, consider the, the Galatians. Galatians 5.7, You were doing so well! until someone made you turn from the truth. The Galatians had started out with, with grace and understanding the gospel, and they veered off course back into the to religion. So they needed to be straightened up again. So what did God do? Did he send a plague? Did he send sickness, disease upon them? No, he sent a preacher, Paul, to write him a letter, one of the greatest books in the Bible. To put them back on course again. What happens if we do not respond to the Holy Spirit's correction? What happens if we don't heed the Holy Spirit? What happens if we pre persist to move forward in that dangerous direction? In this case, the Holy Spirit will intensify his warning to the point of bringing a rebuke. Look at this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, My son, do not despise the ch uh, chastening of the Lord, nor discourage when you are rebuked by him. See, I, when I was in high school, I had a basketball coach, and he would yell at you. And one day he said this, and it just stuck with me for, till now. He said, Boys, when I'm yelling at you, you shouldn't be concerned. But if I ever stop yelling at you, that's when you should be concerned because that's when he's given up. And God doesn't even yell. But he does bring rebuke if we continue to go down a life of destruction. The Lord doesn't rebuke you for your sin. He doesn't scream, look at what you did. Instead, he's not the fault finder. Instead, he will warn you when your sailboat is, to head, is heading towards destruction. Look where you're heading. Watch out. We can see this threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Ephesians church. When Paul first went to Ephesus, he met 12 men who identified themselves as followers of John. They were godly men, but they hadn't heard about Jesus. And you can read that in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through Seven. They weren't walking on all the truth. They needed the Holy Spirit's guidance. And through Paul, they got it. The result was a new church. Sometime later, Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians. And look what he wrote. 
So he wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, and, and since this letter is, is nicer than some of the letters wrote to other churches, it's tempting to picture that the Ephesians were model believers and they didn't have anything wrong because there wasn't much of rebukes in, within the writing. But Paul's letter was, without, with, was not without urgings and gentle corrections. For instance, Paul told them he, he had been praying that they would get a deeper revelation of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 23. And he was also praying that they would know the fathomless love of God that surpasses just mere head knowledge in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. So we read that and we don't realize that when he's telling you to do something, that means that you're not walking in it. They were lacking it. So he was correcting them. That's how God corrects. Paul was saying, you guys are doing so well. Even so, my prayer is that you would know God's love more than you do. What does that tell you? It tells you the Ephesians were in danger of drifting from God's love. And you know what? That's exactly what they did. You fast forward to, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and we find the Ephesians have well and truly wandered away from the love of God. And look at what God, the Holy Spirit says now. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. They were doing so well, just like Paul was writing to them. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have um, preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have become weary. And have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That church was not going to exist anymore if they did not return to the love of Jesus. And it wasn't us walking in more love. It was us walking in more of the knowledge of how much God loves us. We find the Ephesians have truly wandered away from the love of God. They have gotten so busy with religious stuff. Sounds like many churches. They get so busy with religious stuff. They have become loveless and graceless. This is a disaster. They are now well past the need for guidance and gentle correction. What they need is a full-blown rebuke, and that's what they got. And that's exactly what Jesus get, gives them. And that's what Jesus does to us. He doesn't bring calamity. He doesn't bring destruction. Sin brings calamity. Sin brings destruction. He just brings the gentle rebuke. He, brings, he turns the lights on. He brings the course correction. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through people. He speaks to us through our kids. Have any of you had the lights turned on? By your kids. Jesus says they have forsaken their first love and need to remember the height from which they have fallen. In other words, they need to turn their ships around and return to the high place of God's love and grace. 
Well, we're closing. The gospel declares that if you do make a mess of your life, Heavenly Father will not heap guilt and condemnation upon you, but will point to Jesus, this finished work, that you may receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, causing you to reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Amen. God, let me tell this once and for all in case you missed it. God is not the source of our guilt. He removes guilt. He doesn't give guilt. If you're guilty today, it's not God. So you can praise the Lord this morning. You can celebrate this morning. If you have guilt come into your to your life, you have condemnation, you have thoughts that you're no good and you're unworthy and you just get beat over the head again and again, you should shout for glory when you're in your car or in the shower or wherever the attack of the enemy comes. Why? Because you can now say, that's the enemy. That's the enemy attacking me. That's my own conscience attacking me. That's not my born-again spirit. That's not what the Bible says about me. That's not what Jesus says about me. That's not who I am. And you can get up and go and sin no more. Amen? This is good news. This is something to celebrate. Amen. 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 No condemnation here, right? Jesus, because Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are leading us into the deep waters of your grace and love, the, the cooling, the cooling waters of, of the life of the kingdom. And right now, we just speak to the enemy, to the accuser of the brethren, and say, in the minds of these saints, you have no place. We rebuke you. We deny you any place in our minds. We are righteous. We are holy. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. You are defeated. We have died in Christ and have been resurrected to new life. And now we will walk in that new life through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of who we are in Christ. We celebrate you this morning, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we walk out of these doors victorious. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.